0: Welcome to Stories from Glasgow, a podcast all about the arts and humanities with Dr Sia Jackson. Each episode, I'll bring you the latest news, discoveries and stories here from the University of Glasgow's College of Arts and Humanities. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am joined by Professor Ben Coburn, Professor of Political Philosophy here at the University of Glasgow. Ben is also a patron of the charity Friends at the End and a member of the cross-party group on end-of-life choices at the Scottish Parliament. Ben joins me today for a really thought-provoking discussion into autonomy and end-of-life care. This discussion with Ben was absolutely fascinating and I very much enjoyed speaking with him and just learning about the sheer depth and breadth of work that he and his colleagues are doing in this area from working with practitioners and carers through to conversations with legislators as well there's just so much that they are doing that they are considering as you'll hear in this episode I have to say I think we've perhaps only just really scratched the surface in this so I wouldn't be surprised if we don't have Ben back on perhaps a future episode assuming he is willing to return of course Certainly for me, I found my thoughts returning to what autonomy is, what autonomy means to me, and thinking about those choices and supporting them at end of life as well, just in the weeks since we recorded this conversation. All that leaves me to do is to hand over to Ben.
1: My name is Ben Coburn. I'm a professor of political philosophy at the University of Glasgow based in the School of Humanities. I've worked in Glasgow for 13 years now, including for a while as head of philosophy, but I'm back to being a backbencher now. Before I moved to Glasgow, I studied and worked at the University of Cambridge for about 10 years. I mostly work in foundational political philosophy, but also on various topics in applied ethics and public policy as well.
0: We're going to be talking about your work around autonomy and end of life and the assisted dying for terminally ill adults, Bill. Before we do that, do you want to just maybe briefly explain for our listeners who might not be aware what a political philosopher is, what kind of issues you'd be looking at more generally there?
1: Yeah, of course. So... Political philosophy, I suppose, is a species of what we call practical philosophy or moral philosophy. I mean, even putting it that way, of course, is the type of thing that some philosophers are going to disagree with. But I think it's roughly right because a political philosopher is thinking about what we may or must do or should or shouldn't. What the political philosopher focuses on, by contrast, say, with just an ethicist, is that we focus particularly on the social dimension of some of these questions, and in particular, the social dimension that comes in when we think about relations of power that obtain. So oftentimes, the political philosopher will be talking about questions like, is it right that we have a coercive state? is there such a thing as legitimate authority? Do people have the power to establish laws, to make people act a certain way, or to punish them if they don't act that way? There are quite a lot of disparate questions in this area, but I think that they're all united by the thought that there's a particular sort of normative question that emerges when we think about power relations. That might be within the context of a state, but of course a central form of political philosophy is anarchism. That's the view that there is no legitimate state. There is no central exercise of power of that sort that can be justified. But that's still political philosophy, because of course, it's still making a claim about power relations and sophisticated anarchists like my colleague, James Humphreys, still explore the way in which there can be legitimate forms of interpersonal influence and authority, even in the absence of of states and things like that. So that's what a political philosopher does. But of course, it connects to these other questions in ethics as well. Uh, These things are very closely related.
0: In terms of the idea of autonomy and living an autonomous life, what is it those terms kind of mean? And how would that fit into living with the stay? Is that something that interplays a little bit?
1: Yeah, good, good question. So autonomy is a central notion in both political and moral philosophy. The term originally comes from the ancient Greek. So if you were to speak to an ancient Greek about autonomy or autosnomos, then what they would understand by that is actually a political notion. It's a legal notion, in fact. So ancient Greece was made up of this sort of mosaic of city-states. And there was a distinction between the city-states that gave their laws to themselves, legislated for themselves, and the city-states that had their laws given to them or imposed on them by some other city. The two types of cities might be quite similar in other respects. Some of the cities that did not give the laws to themselves became some of the most populous and powerful cities in the Greek world. For example, there's the city of Syracuse in Sicily, part of the Greek diaspora. But Syracuse was not a city that gave its laws unto itself. It was a city that took its legislation from its mother city in the core of Greece, Athens, I think, in, in that case. So this notion of autonomy is a notion of a city that gives its legislation to itself, that sets its own legal code. Some, cities in ancient Greece were like that. Athens, Sparta, Corinth, Argos. Other cities in ancient Greece, however powerful they were in other respects, didn't do that like, for example, Syracuse, Taranto, or Naples. Okay, so that's the ancient Greek notion. It then sort of disappears for a while, this idea of autonomy, until that ancient Greek notion is re-evoked by the Enlightenment philosopher Immanuel Kant. And he uses it as a metaphor to capture something which now, unlike with the ancient Greeks, is understood as a property of individuals. In particular, Kant thought that a central part of his moral philosophy was the idea that the individual could be self-legislated, legislating, just in the same way that Athens as a city was self-legislating. He thought, in fact, that the only way for an individual person to be properly moral was for them to be autonomous in that sense, to legislate for themselves, that is, to act only on the basis of moral considerations that they give to themselves, that they decide on through pure reason, rather than, for example, sort of contingent desires that push them in certain directions or other people telling them what to do. So because this idea of self-legislation was so Central for Kant's a core ethical project. He uses this idea of autonomy, which of course at that point is a a sort of a metaphor that he borrows from the ancient Greeks to capture it. I say sort of a metaphor, because in another sense it's not a metaphor for Kant. He, He really did think it was a matter of legislating for oneself. Now, Kant reintroduces the concept, and then it gets picked up over the ensuing couple of centuries. And it's been a tremendously influential one. There's dispute about quite how far the way that we talk about autonomy now is related to that Kantian core idea. But I think a lot of philosophers understand that there's something important about an individual living a life of self-governance, I suppose, is the, the core notion there. The autonomous individual is somebody who governs their own life. Open to discussion what that actually means. Different philosophers in Political philosophy or in ethics can agree that autonomy is a matter of self governance and agree that it's centrally important in some way. But we often disagree about what you actually have to do for your life to be like that. And a lot of the type of work that I and my fellow political philosophers do is to explore those different understandings and try to work out which one is the best way of capturing this plausible, powerful, I think quite attractive central ideal, but which needs the details worked out. For
0: you then, what are the ways that we can live an autonomous life, that we can be self-governing?
1: In my research, I defend a particular answer to the question that I just posed, a particular way of understanding what self-governing life is. I say that an autonomous life is one where an individual decides for themselves what is valuable and lives their life in accordance with that decision. That's my way of trying to capture an idea which actually I get from the philosopher Joseph Raz. Raz talks about autonomy, and he uses the beautiful metaphor of self-authorship. Raz talks about the autonomous individual as being part author of their own life, um, shaping it through successive decisions in accordance with what they value. And I I think that's a beautiful idea. It doesn't just emerge in Raz's thought out of nowhere. I think he's, he's tapping into a longer tradition, which includes famous philosophers like the 19th century English philosopher John Stuart Mill, or the 18th and 19th century Prussian philosopher uh, Wilhelm von Humboldt, who talked about individuality. But I think Raz's metaphor is the most illuminating and exciting, how this idea of self-authorship as being central. For me, that breaks down into three components. The first is that you have some ambitions, some goals, and some values that you endorse. The second component is that you do so with independence, which means that you're not covertly influenced or pressured into holding them. If, if the reason you have the values you do is because you've been manipulated or pressured or or influenced in these malign ways that you're not aware of, then then that, that's a bad thing. And thirdly, that you shape your life in accordance with those independently arrived at values. That means that your life has to go the way that you want. Your life goes in accordance with those those sort of values. But also, crucially, that you are the one that makes it so. I think if you were to speak to somebody else working on autonomy in the English-speaking world, the part of my way of thinking about it that they would say is most distinctive and eccentric, maybe, is this focus on you being the one that makes it. Because what that means for me is that responsibility is central. The autonomous life is a life where you as the individual have responsibility for how your life goes in a connect in a number of different ways. So that's quite a demanding ideal. Your question Sia was, how can we live an autonomous life? And it's quite difficult because it's got these different dimensions. And for that reason, I think it requires help and support. That is, your ability to live an autonomous life is going to depend upon how your society is set up and your relations with other people. That incidentally answers one of your earlier questions, which is why this is a question in political philosophy. I think your political context and your societal structures are essential to how you can live autonomously. Now, of course, Some people might hear that and they think, well, that's a paradox, because the autonomous life has to be the one that you make. It has to be one where you're not dependent upon those external things to live the kind of life that you want. And some people think of autonomy that way. But I I think that that seems to me a mistake. And it's a feature of recent philosophical developments in thinking about autonomy that we've on the whole turned away from that way of understanding autonomy as a kind of rugged ideal of independence, of autarky, of a lack of connection or dependence on other people. Sometimes people who argue about autonomy treat that as what autonomy means, but I've come to think that's a silly caricature. I think autonomy, in fact, is an ideal which requires, indeed it encourages, relations of support and interconnection with others in our society. It's a social ideal because we' we're, we're social beings, that's why we develop those capacities for endorsement, for independence, the abilities to make our lives go that way, agency, our more specific thing skills. We do those by building up the social relations around us that can support us in developing and exercising those things to achieve our goals, as well as in fact helping us work out what those goals are. So the social element, I think is key.
0: Yeah, I think hearing you talk about that, one of the things that kind of popped out to me was kind of thinking these relationships, and I'm sure the listeners are probably having a similar realisation, these relationships have been a part in my own self-authorship and the decisions that I've made, but also thinking about the wider, as you say, societal context as well.
1: I think that sometimes... Before people reflect, it can sometimes feel as though those things hinder your autonomy, that your dependence in that way, your connection in that way is something that means that you're you're being influenced in ways that are problematic. What I want to do is to sh- sort of show people that actually know that's not the case, that these relations can be extremely empowering, that they constitute what it is for you to live your own life. They don't detract from it. But I I agree with you, absolutely. I think um, it's a central feature of lots of our lives when we reflect on it, that we have this complicated network of relationships, some of which are very close and intimate and particular, and some of which, as you say, stretch out the the, the whole of the, the sort of social context, the legal and political context that we live in.
0: I like your use of the word empowering there. And I know when you and I met up to chat previously and we were discussing the idea of autonomy in the relation to end of life, that was a word that you used if we can maybe shift gear a little bit and start delving into that, what do we mean by end of life? What is it in the context of this discussion?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think that often when people hear that phrase, what they understand is something like terminal illness. So somebody who has been diagnosed with a life-limiting condition where there's some sort of particular time span on their expected remaining life expectancy. I suppose and I fear this is going to be a bit of a theme today, Sia, because this is what philosophers always do. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. In particular, I think that I'm interested in a range of ethically, philosophically troubling scenarios that people can face. And they're often characterised by some sort of overlapping combination of factors, physiological or cognitive decline or incapacity, Maybe uh, pain is another one that's often present. Long life, meaning that you've been alive for a long time, is another ingredient, and approaching death is another ingredient. Where that might be because you have some specified life-limiting condition, like like cancer, for example, or it might be just because, uh, as a matter of fact, you are extremely old, and um, it, the likelihood is that your life is going to end in in sort of pretty short order. Now, I I say that this is a kind of overlapping combination of factors because I think that not all of these will be part of everybody's end-of-life predicament, and we might want to say different things about each of them, but many of them often come together. So when I think about end of life ethics, I think about the philosophy that explores the different characteristics of these different ingredients, these different components, and also what happens when they overlap in some of the ways they do in sort of paradigm cases that we might think about.
0: Can we dive into that a little bit more, please, Ben? So thinking about some of the ingredients that you've just laid out there, can you give us a couple more examples of the different ways these things can threaten someone's autonomy during their end of life or when they're experiencing the end of life care.
1: Four of the ingredients that I just set out physiological incapacity, cognitive decline, pain. Well, let's make it five, five components pain, approaching death, and having lived a very long life. Those things seem to be central to me and interesting because they can be threatened by or during. the the end of life in different ways. So physiological incapacity, for example, means that you cease to be able to do the things that you value. Suppose that one of your central activities in your life, as it is for me, is climbing mountains, physiological incapacity as you grow older might make that impossible. That's a threat to your autonomy because you cease to be able to live your life in accordance with something that you value. Cognitive decline can do it in a different way. If some of the things that you value are the life of the mind, then cognitive decline is going to have the same effect as physiological incapacity. If I cease to be able to philosophize as effectively as I can now, then that's bad for my autonomy. But also, of course, cognitive decline can undermine somebody's ability to decide values for themselves in a much more fundamental way. It can undermine their ability to resist certain sorts of influence that impair independence, for example. Both of those things incidentally explain why I think suffering is such a big part of people's end-of-life predicaments. My colleague in philosophy, Jennifer Corns, has recently been developing an exciting new way of thinking about suffering, where we understand suffering as significantly impaired agency. That's different from pain, And it's different from negative experience. People can suffer in the sense that they have impaired agency without necessarily being in pain or having much negative experience. That's true, for example, of some people who have dementia, I think. But they are suffering. And the reason that they're suffering, on on Jennifer's view, is that their agency is significantly impaired. Now, agency has various different dimensions. It comes in different forms. And the two examples of of end-of-life suffering that I've just explained are two of those core forms. So that's why the relationship between those increasing forms of incapacity that can characterize end of life and suffering explains this threat that they pose for autonomy. Another one that I mentioned was pain. Pain can have some of the same interesting effects. Pain distracts you, it impairs your agency by making it difficult to focus on things. Also on the assumption that most of us don't want to endure pain. It affects our autonomy by creating this central, rather dominating component that isn't part of our life plan. Approaching death is something that impairs autonomy or threatens autonomy. It can do anyway. It might be upsetting or debilitating to realise that your life is coming to an end. Or it might just represent the cessation of your plans, the ability to see things through. If you're dying, one of the things that happens is that you cease to be able to directly influence what happens in the world after you've died. And if you have ambitions, as most of us do, that extend into the future, then that can be a, a problem. We want our loved ones to flourish. We want our plans to continue to come to fruition. We want our political and environmental and social values to successfully continue. And, and death is a, it can be a problem from those points of view. The other thing in this connection that I've been thinking about, Sia, is, is about long life. I mean, I mentioned that as an ingredient. I think this is a little bit more tenuous, but I, I wonder whether long life is something which itself can also be a problem for autonomy in, in these end-of-life predicaments. So I got into thinking about this because of some other work I was doing on Marcel Proust, um, thinking about the intersection between philosophy and literature. And there's this absolutely electrifying passage at the end of A La Recherche du Temps perdu, which is just a, a in in the midst of a book where there were many things that I read that felt life-changing, this one particularly came out. uh, Is it okay if I I read that out?
0: Of course, please do.
1: Okay, so here's the passage. It's coming right at the end. I won't explain the context too much so that we don't have to give a spoiler warning to listeners who wanted to read the book but haven't. Here's what he says, the narrator says, I felt a sensation of weariness, and almost of terror at the thought that all this length of time had not only without interruption been lived, experienced, secreted by me, that it was my life was in fact me, but also that I was compelled so long as I was alive to keep it attached to me, that it supported me and that perched on its giddy summit, I could not myself make a movement without displacing it. A feeling of vertigo seized me, as though I looked down beneath me, yet within me, as though from a height, which was my own height of many leagues at the long series of the years, as though men spend their life perched upon living stilts, which never cease to grow until sometimes they become taller than church steeples. This image of a life as a process whereby through time we Build up these stilts beneath us is such a powerful and beautiful image, and also, as Proust himself says, or his narrator says, a kind of dizzying and terrifying, wearying image, because it simultaneously captures the way that as you as you live a long life through successive decisions and events, you get a kind of bigger perspective than you have at the start of it. But you also create this kind of weight that constrains your your autonomy in various ways. It constrains what types of meanings you can establish after that, what types of lives. You you can lead so I think that that's another element of some end of life predicaments which I think can be a problem for autonomy for at least some people is this this weight of, of accreted time of course it's not true for everybody I want to emphasize again sorry for pushing the point that not all of these ingredients will be present for all people there are some people who come to the end of their lives and remain as mentally sharp as they have been for the whole of it. They just suffer from physical incapacity or some of these other forms of decline. There can be people who suffer mental decline who remain physically extremely fit. There can be people who are facing their end-of-life predicaments who aren't old. I think that's one of the biggest shifts that I had to make in my thinking in this work. I started off, I think, as maybe many of us do, with a sort of paradigm case in my mind of of an elderly person facing end of life, perhaps dying of some terminal condition like cancer. But through my work with some of the outside organisations I've engaged with, uh, the Prince and Princess of Wales Hospice in particular, I've been thinking about some of the other people who face end of life. The Prince and Princess of Wales Hospice at the moment are working with young men with Duchenne muscular dystrophy that's a disease that means that you can't produce dystrophin which is a protein that you need for producing for building your muscles the result of that is that your muscles continuously and irreversibly deteriorate duchenne is a disease that's always fatal people who have it usually die in their late teens or early 20s from Uh, respiratory failure or heart failure or other complications. And in the meanwhile, they face uh, serious and worsening mobility problems, uh, basically up to to the point of complete paralysis in most cases. Now, of course, what you have there is an example of somebody whose end-of-life predicament includes in a really stark way the physiological incapacity I talked about, but not cognitive decline necessarily not in most cases, and not this feature of long life uh, because people who have this life-limiting condition aren't elderly. It means that the challenge to their autonomy that they face is very different to the kind of paradigm case. Can't take a kind of one-size-fits-all approach to supporting autonomy here. It's a point worth emphasizing that uh, it's not only old people who face end of life.
0: You've touched upon the different threats, the different components, that can impact someone's autonomy at end of life. But I wonder if we can perhaps change gear a little now, Ben. Can you tell us what can be done to support autonomy at end of life?
1: I've come across in my research examples of things that we can do to uh, support people's autonomy in these circumstances. I have to say my sense is that they are on the whole under-resourced, that we need to do more, and that also things look very different if we understand these as all fitting together rather than being piecemeal arrangements that people cobble together in different parts. So I think the overall message of my research in this area is let's draw on the really good examples we have, but try to discharge them more systematically. And by seeing them all as targeting this central idea of autonomy, perhaps we can build connections between them that don't exist. Let me give you a few examples, Sia, because I think it, it helps to flesh out the idea. I mean, it takes us back in a sense to the point that I was making earlier on about the the social character of autonomy. Sometimes people worry that autonomy is lost in end of life because of these problematic features that I've talked us through. And, and that, that just makes it impossible to be the author of their life. Well, no, I, I don't think that's that's true. Right? People might just need different sorts of support to sustain their autonomy. And of course, exactly what's needed will vary depending on the exact configuration of somebody's end of life predicament. I mean, that's what I was just saying, I suppose. Somebody who's mentally sharp but physically disabled will need a particular sort of support, maybe spatial reorganisation, extra resources to deal with mobility problems for example, that's the type of support we give somebody whose end-of-life predicament has that configuration. Somebody who is physically healthy but suffering cognitive decline will need a different kind of scaffolding that might be offered through specialist interpersonal care, so the type of thing that a specialist dementia carer does, for example, and so on for all of the other components as well. And I think quite a lot of my recent research has been exploring what we currently do and what we can do to support autonomy in these different dimensions. I'll give you three examples, if I may. The first example comes from joint work I've been doing with Jennifer Corns, whom I mentioned earlier on, the philosopher who has this exciting new theory of suffering. Jennifer and I have been working with Macmillan Cancer Care recently to develop a sort of sweeter professional development materials, things that they can use to help support and educate the carers, some of whom are employed, some of whom are volunteers who, who work with them with patients who have cancer. What we've been doing while we've been developing that is looking at how people can suffer at end of life because of the effect that terminal illness has on their agency. And we've been developing tools for professional carers to help them reflect upon the distinctive kind of relationship that a professional carer has with somebody who has cancer for example, and how they can use that distinctive relationship to help people navigate the end of life in a way that upholds their autonomy by helping them understand and make active decisions about the trade-offs that they'll face as they suffer, different forms of physical decline, for example, and to make sure that care is offered in a way that upholds autonomy. It's nice that we've been able in this to draw upon some philosophical and academic research including more that's going on in in Glasgow as it happens our colleague matilda carter who is a british academy postdoctoral fellow working in in philosophy in the school of humanities at the moment has has done some important research on the way in which professional as opposed to familial dementia care can actually in a way that might be a bit surprising be much better from the point of view of sustaining justice and autonomy for people living with dementia because The professional relationship has a kind of uh, normative character that makes it easier to deliver care in ways that don't inadvertently undermine how somebody lives. It's not just academic research we've been looking at, of course, we've been talking to our partners within within Macmillan about the types of things that they do, what practically happens to support people with cancer, and helping them to pull that together to think about how you use the caring relationship, the professional caring relationship, to deal with some of these threats to autonomy that I talked through. Second example also comes from a collaboration is some work I've been doing with Jane Klossig, who's based at London Metropolitan University, and Emily McTernan, who's based at UCL. Jane is an architect and urban theorist. Emily is a political philosopher like me. And we've come together to run some events where we've been exploring, amongst other things, the spaces of death. So, that is to say, the architecture and physical configuration, the spatial configuration of hospitals, hospices, homes, if that's where people are dying. And we've been trying to think about how those. Architectural features, the spatial features, might help or hinder autonomy for people facing this particular kind of predicament. Talking not just with other academics, but also with people who use these buildings, people who design these buildings as well, to try to come up with useful examples of how it can work, how to counteract it when it doesn't work. Third example is the work I've been doing on assisted. Dying. So I've, I've published academic articles on assisted dying, but I've also been working with the current legislative process to try to make this actually happen in Scotland. I think, and I've, I've argued in my research, that offering the option of assisted dying isn't the only thing that we should do to uphold autonomy at the end of life. But I think it is a very important and central one for a variety of reasons. In that sense, I think we're looking at the legal space that we live at the end of our lives in and saying that that legal space needs to be reshaped to give us this additional option. It's important for us if we want to take it. I think if somebody wants to have an assisted death, then there's a powerful autonomy-based reason to help have what they want. But I think that having that option actually is empowering for us, even if in the moment we don't want to to die. Having that option on the table is something that improves our autonomy by transforming the character of our options as a whole in a way that I think is, is positive and empowering.
0: That, for me, brings home what you were saying earlier about the idea of choice and self-governance.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's right. I'm glad you say that. I mean, I I think it's striking and, to me, really troubling that, on the whole, at the moment, the law and many people treat the type of vulnerability that we face in our self-governance at the end of life very differently to the way that we treat it elsewhere. I mean, on the whole, in the rest of mm. our lives, I think we we think that... If somebody is vulnerable to their self-governance being undermined in a particular way, or if their choices are constrained, what we should be doing is trying to empower them in the face of that vulnerability to make their own choices, to continue to be the author of their lives. So, for example, if we're thinking about the type of vulnerability somebody faces in employment... The way that we respond to that as a society, or the way we should be, except we should respond to that, is by offering support. We educate, we retrain, we try to make sure that the context is one which enables somebody to make new and different choices about what they do. We don't take the choice away in in the name of vulnerability. I mean, that would be to undermine autonomy in a much more fundamental way. It would be to respond to a threat to autonomy by Mm -hmm. undermining autonomy centrally. That that seems self-defeating. Likewise, if we think about the type of vulnerability people face in medical treatment, when you, you have the prospect of a potentially risky medical procedure, the way we respond to that vulnerability is through empowerment. We try to give people information about what's going to happen to them. And then we treat their consent about what they do as being authoritative. We don't take the choice away. I worry at the moment that the present state of things where assisted dying is not legal does do that. It takes away the choices that people could have. I don't think we should do that. I think that we we should take the same approach to vulnerability here as we do elsewhere by emphasising the importance of choice and by using social structures to support somebody to continue being self-governing, even in, in that sort of terminal moment.
0: Earlier, you mentioned working with carers and other collaborative work that you've been doing. And I'm wondering, in terms of your research, and again, that collaborative work, have the other people involved in that end-of-life journey come into consideration for you at all? So thinking about maybe family and friends of the person who's experiencing end-of-life?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a big consideration, of course. I think one of the reasons sometimes that people oppose assisted dying laws is because they are very aware of those those knock-on effects. In fact, you can imagine somebody constructing an argument against assisted dying by appealing to some of the points that I've made already about how we are socially embedded, that we as autonomous individuals have to be within this context of supportive relationships. Somebody might say, well, in light of that, how can it be acceptable to wreak this damage on people? I think there are there are two things to say about that really. There are two reasons why, although I see the force of that line of thought, but I don't think it's a it's a good reason not to legalize assisted dying. One of them is that just looking at the data and people's lived experience of their loved ones dying, there are at least as many cases of people reporting how painful it is to see somebody going through that process without having the option of ending it when they want. And that being really painful and upsetting for loved ones as well i don't want to downplay the fact that it can also be really painful for people who see their loved ones choose to end their lives go of course that can be a source of great pain as well but i think there's 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 pain on both sides it's not like it all sits on one side of the calculation And then that takes us to the philosophical point, which is: if you think that autonomy is important, then ultimately the people who get to make the choices about how to manage these extremely difficult situations are the person who is dying and their network of loved ones themselves. That is, if the decision that they make is that it would just be too painful for somebody to choose to end their life to cause too many ripple effects. Well, then they will have the authority to make that decision for themselves, if that's how it if that's how it seems. The crucial thing is just that that's. Not the right answer for everybody. There are lots of people who report that they take that into account, and yet it's sort of ultimately having the choice of an assisted death is the thing that they think is right for them and that their family thinks is right for them. And that in the end, what the law should do is uphold the individual's right to decide this for themselves in light of their own circumstances.
0: At the start of the episode, we mentioned that you've been working as Part of the consortium of philosophers around the Assisted Dying for Terminally Ill Adults Bill. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about your work there and perhaps how the consortium came to be?
1: Just in case there are listeners who aren't aware of it, um, it's a, it's a private members' bill that's being introduced by Liam MacArthur, who is the MSP for Orkney, and the aim is to allow mentally competent adults who are terminally ill to be provided at their request with assistance to end their lives. And the Consortium of Philosophers is a group of of moral philosophers, political philosophers, based at the universities of Glasgow, Edinburgh, and St Andrews, who came together because we're all specialists in different areas of moral philosophy and medical ethics, and we also converge on the view that this proposed bill is a positive step. We all think that there should be a a right to the option of assisted death for people who are terminally ill in Scotland. One of the things that we wanted to do, the reason that we came together as a consortium is that we think that these discussions that we're going to be having in Scotland over the next sort of couple of years around this bill really needs a sort of moral perspective, I think. Scotland has a really thriving world-class moral philosophy community uh, spread across its various universities. And we wanted as a group to, to harness that great resource and make it available to help support public discussion around this important ethical topic, and also to support our MSPs to work out what they think about it and to make well-informed decisions here that are informed by a kind of cutting-edge research within the relevant academic fields, within medical ethics, within moral philosophy. We have three key messages, I guess, as a consortium that we wanted to convey. One of them is that, as I said, we converge on supporting this bill. We think that this bill should be passed, and we do so from a variety of different perspectives. You and I today, Sia, have been talking a lot about individual autonomy because that's the foundational value that, for me, explains why I'm in support of it. Not everybody in the consortium thinks that autonomy is as central as I do. Michael Cholby at Edinburgh, Michael Gill at Edinburgh, Joseph Millam at St Andrews, and Glenn Pettigrove, my colleague here in in Glasgow, all support it perhaps for different combinations of, of reasons. But what we want to demonstrate is that there's a wide constituency of moral perspectives that we have explored in our research that can converge on supporting this bill. So that's the first key message. The second key message is that we think actually that our skills, not just as researchers in philosophy, but also as teachers of philosophy could be really helpful here. The question of whether there should be assisted, legalised assisted dying is, it's a fraught, it's morally and emotionally fraught. People have deep, deeply held feelings about it. It touches on difficult parts of our experience. It's very easy for arguments in this area to cast more heat than light, I think. But of course, philosophy is the academic discipline par excellence, which takes that kind of really fraught context and gives people the tools, empowers people to be able to look at those things and say, how do we think through this issue in a way that builds understanding between disparate viewpoints and comes to a conclusion with clarity and intellectual integrity about it. We're used to offering that to our students. That's what an education in philosophy tries to provide. We think that some of those same skills could be useful to help the others who are having to make this decision now. The third part of the key message is, although we have great experience, both in our research and in our teaching, as I've described, we're not claiming moral authority in this debate. I mean, it's true that we have all converged on thinking that the law should be changed to make this an option, but we're not trying to tell people what the ethically correct thing for them to do is. What we want to do is to encourage people to reflect on it for themselves. And and that, I think, is Counteracting a way that the debate has gone so far that we have found rather troubling. I think oftentimes discussion around assisted dying has been characterized by opposition from leaders, in inverted commas, who have claimed the moral high ground and used that as a basis to oppose this kind of legal proposal. For example, leaders of medical associations saying that doctors and other clinicians oppose assisted dying. unilaterally, or religious leaders claim that people of faith have a moral opposition to assisted dying laws, or at least some self-appointed spokespeople from within the disabled community say that people living with disabilities as a whole are either afraid of or opposed to this kind of legal change. The problem with those kinds of claims to moral authority is that they just don't reflect the facts on the ground. In fact, within the groups that those voices are claiming to speak for, what people say is much more complicated. There's much more nuance and disagreement. In fact, as you would expect, there's the same nuance and disagreement as there is everywhere else. There are doctors and other clinicians who oppose assisted dying, but there are also doctors and clinicians who favour an option of assisted dying. That's one of the reasons why many professional medical organisations recently have shifted from a position of opposition to this bill to a position of neutrality. In other words, there's the same disagreement within that community as there is in sort of our political community at large. There are some people who live with disabilities who are afraid of or oppose assisted dying. But actually, many more people with disabilities favour having that option, especially when it's made clear that the evidence shows that there's not much reason to think that people with that kind of vulnerability are especially affected by these kinds of legal changes. The same point can be made for religious groups, I think, even at the same time, in fact, as the religious leaders in Scotland, I think it was the leader of the Catholic Church, the Church of Scotland and the United Mosques of Scotland, put out a joint statement saying that people of faith are opposed to this bill. The very next week, we saw the Assembly of the Church of Scotland, the grassroots organisation, saying, actually, there are a variety of religious perspectives on this question and we want to explore this openly. That's the thing that we really want to encourage, I think. Within those groups, there's the same nuance and disagreement between individuals as everywhere, because that's what you'd expect. How our lives end is an ethical predicament which we all face. It's different for all of us because of the different combination of these factors that you and I have been talking through. The approach that we want to encourage is to to recognize that individual difference different perspectives and focus on using philosophy to empower people to make the right decisions for themselves rather than just thinking that it has to be imposed on them because of these claims of moral authority.
0: When I've seen things about assisted dying in the media it tends to be rather sensationalized I suppose it kind of lacks the nuance that you're mentioning and then thinking back to what you said about the idea of your life being built upon stilts when we all come to end of life It almost does feel a little bit precarious, like the idea of being on stilts. We need that nuance and that understanding and the opportunity, I suppose, to explore, as you're saying.
1: That's right. I think a one size fits all solution is never going to work, given the complexity Mm. of the situation, for all the reasons that you've just said. I think that the current state of things, with assisted dying being illegal, does impose a one size fits all at least in this important respect. So we should change that. It doesn't mean that an assisted death is going to be the right thing for everybody. Experience Mm -hmm. shows that a majority of deaths don't take place that way, even in jurisdictions where where assisted dying is an option. But it's at least the right option for some people. And we ought to be able to decide that for ourselves. That's one way that we can help steady the stilts. To go back to that that lovely metaphor Mm -hmm. from, from Proust, we can give people that perspective where they can look at end-of-life predicament and work out what's right for them.
0: So in terms of the bill what's the state of it at the moment can you tell us a bit about where it is and where you and the consortium are with things?
1: Sure so earlier this year there was a big public consultation on the draft proposal uh, actually it was the it is the private members bill that has had far and away the biggest public response to it so far lots and lots of people writing in and the nice thing was not just organizations, and not just sort of professional researchers in this area. Oftentimes, those are the only people who respond to these things. But I think it was about 14,000 people responded. In the end, they had about 14,000 responses to this this consultation. Most of them were just from our sort of fellow citizens in Scotland explaining their perspective on this what they wanted what their fears were what their hopes were and so on the response to that was overwhelmingly positive that is to say overwhelmingly in favor of this legislative change what's happening now is that legislation is being drafted it's being done very carefully because of course one has to attend to making sure that the proposed safeguards are the right ones and that this fits within the competency of the the, the devolved Scottish Parliament there will be a draft bill introduced uh, probably during the next legislative session so within the next 12 months it will then go through the usual process within the Scottish Parliament for this type of thing so the, the, the question will be considered as a matter of principle by the Parliament as a whole and if it's if it passes that then it will go into committee and a specialized committee will then look at it and go through the proposed legislation line by line looking to see if things need to be changed getting input from relevant experts so i suspect that the consortium will be speaking to the committee about some of the ideas that we've talked about today as part of that process as well and then the committee will make its recommendation to the parliament about what ought to happen and then there will be a series of further debates around it and uh, then there will be a vote and We will just get, at that point, we will see whether the MSPs decide to pass this or not. It's a slow process. I think that's a good thing on the whole. As you said, Sia, public discussion around this is often very heated and very urgent. I think one way that we can counteract the sort of knee-jerk character that these debates often have, because our new cycle is so fast nowadays, is by just making sure that the process is long and slow enough to make sure that all voices have their place within those decisions, not just the loud, fast, shouty ones, but also the nuanced, complex ones where perhaps it takes a bit longer to, to get the thought through. I very much hope that it passes. I, I do firmly firmly believe that it's the right thing for Scotland for this to happen. I think we see from other places where there are already assisted dying laws of the kind that we would have that that it's on it's a very good thing for people in those places. And when I think about the people I've encountered doing work on end of life ethics in Scotland, it's an option that I would love people in that position to have as well.
0: So that's what's next in terms of the bill and what the consortium will be doing. And I think I agree with you. It is good that this is a process that is going to be slow and allow for those discussions and consideration, getting those nuances, I think. Can you tell us a bit about what you're going to be doing as well in that time? Is there anything else that you're going to be working on?
1: Working with these outside organisations and with the legislative process, I think, feeds back into the philosophy and the research, interestingly, because it picks out those areas where there needs to be more research. That's happened already Uh, with me. I've recently published an article on the effect of assisted dying legislation on people with disabilities to try and explore some of those fears that I alluded to earlier on. I think there's more to be done there, thinking about vulnerability in general. I think there's work to be done on thinking about the relationship between the rate of non-assisted suicides within a particular jurisdiction and what happens when you introduce the option of an assisted death in those jurisdictions as well. Some people are concerned about a causal connection between those two things. I want to bring my philosophical but also my empirical skills to bear on scrutinising the evidence for that link, but also thinking about what it might mean. Although I think this type of legal process, it's obviously in some senses a central focus at the moment because it's it's a, a big thing to be involved in. But I think that it's also important to see that Assisted dying is not the only question in end-of-life ethics that needs to be explored. So alongside all of that, I want to continue to think about and put the assisted dying stuff into the context of some of these other questions that I've talked to you about. So these spatial questions, for example, about the spaces of death, how we can think philosophically about upholding people's autonomy through the physical configuration of the spaces that we, we live and die in thinking about suffering, thinking about the relationship between autonomy, the impairment of agency, and what we can do to try and prevent that. What I have in mind, I suppose, really is a kind of package of research, some of which will be purely philosophical. I I, I have in mind to, um, to write a book about this in the next couple of years, I suppose. I think it's probably a good idea to bring all of this stuff together in one place, because I think I earlier on said that, practically speaking, the way people respond to these things is often a bit fragmented. Putting it all together and giving people a holistic view with autonomy at its heart strikes me as something that will be useful both in the research community and, and in practice. But also not just producing that, but continuing to explore these external collaborations, which I think are, are they're useful ways of disseminating our knowledge and our research out with the academic community. But as I hope our conversation has made clear, I think they're they're philosophically extremely fertile and rewarding as well. People who are facing these dilemmas and these quite these questions about how to care for people at end of life, they're facing basically philosophical questions every day. Maybe not in those terms. Maybe they, they they don't use the kind of language that a moral philosopher uses to think through it. But there's a great deal of lived experience of moral dilemmas and attempts to come up with ethically sound solutions to those things that i find very inspiring and useful for the research as well so there's a sort of symbiotic relationship i think between the work i hope to do on the research side in end-of-life ethics over the next couple of years and the work that i and some of my colleagues are doing in outreach knowledge exchange and impact they they affect each other in quite an exciting and productive way i think
0: Many thanks to Ben for joining me on today's episode. If, like me, you are interested and keen to keep up to date with everything that Ben is working on, you can do so by following him on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, at Autonomania. And we will also include some links in this episode's show notes to the various colleagues and organisations that Ben and I discussed as well. And you can find those by visiting www.gla.ac.uk forward slash art podcast. Thanks for listening to the Stories from Glasgow podcast. You can keep up to date with everything that's going on in the College of Arts and Humanities by following us on social media at U of G arts Hums, or by visiting gla.ac.uk forward slash arts. This episode was produced by Dr. Sia Jackson. Music is by Coma Media. We'll see you next time.